uh, you know, prime example of that is PTSD. Now, marijuana is a qualifying condition for PTSD in most states that have medical marijuana programs. Um, but the, you know, and none of the qualifying conditions are based on any kind of scientific evidence because there is no evidence that marijuana is an effective medicine uh, for the vast majority of these qualifying conditions. Um, but in the case of PTSD, it's actually adverse. Um, there have been two studies done in veterans uh, with PTSD with large sample sizes, and they found that uh, veterans with PTSD who use marijuana experienced uh, a worsening of their symptoms. So, and that was replicated in another study. So it's actually adverse. Welcome to episode 18 of the Prevention Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Clausen. So honored to have you with us today. Now for today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sharif Moore. Now, he is an epidemiologist with the Drug-Free America Foundation where he collects, analyzes, and interprets epidemiological data on substance abuse trends in order to inform program planning and policy at the local, state, and federal levels. Now, Sharif is a friend, colleague, and true prevention leader, and he's very passionate about substance abuse research and preventing drug use through science and policy-based solutions. On today's episode, Sharif's journey to prevention is all-out gut-wrenching, heartwarming, and inspiring all in one. He also shares some behind-the-scenes info on the latest marijuana marketing research, the Drug-Free America Foundation's new podcast, and how we can stay up-to-date on the latest marijuana research. So settle in for one inspiring journey. All right, podcast listeners, I am excited about this episode. Y'all, I've got uh, a celebrity joining me today. He's a celebrity, a friend, and a colleague. And we're just going to wing it and just talk. And just a little bit about Dr. Sharif Moore. He's an epidemiologist with the Drug-Free America Foundation. And he's that person I call when I have this idea that is just stuck in my mind, my brain, and I need to get it out and need something to help me understand what I'm actually thinking and how to say it. And he, he's that person that I, I call. Sharif, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I just want to point out that as far as being a celebrity, maybe in my own mind, <laughs> but beyond uh, that, I'm not so sure. <laughs> oh, you are a celebrity in my mind. That is for sure. Um, you've been doing some awesome stuff. And I'm just jumping right into it. You're a celebrity. You are on the international stage. Little old me in my four-state PTTC region. I mean, you're out there. Your reach, your impact is awesome. And I don't know. I think you should tell folks about your most recent podcast episode. Y'all, Sharif's got his own podcast, and I'm going to drop a link in the show notes, but you had some, some great guests already join you on your podcast. This, this most recent one, talking about research and marketing around marijuana. Tell me a little more about that. Yeah, so our guest on that episode was Theodore Caputi, 
and uh, Theo is a PhD student uh, in economics at MIT. And uh, he's done some amazing work that's been published in top tier journals, such as uh, the Journal of the uh, American Medical Association, JAMA. Uh, his work has been featured in the New York Times and on CNN. So he's been very prolific uh, in, in his short, short career. And uh, one of the focuses of his research is how the marijuana industry is using um, poorly designed studies or weak studies to market their products. And what happens is the average consumer, they don't have the ability to critically evaluate uh, some of these studies that the marijuana industry sources for some of the, the bolder claims that they make in terms of health benefits um, or, you know, when, or minimizing um, the safety concerns. And they word their claims in such a way that, well, technically it's true, but they don't happen to tell you that maybe they, the study only consisted of 10 people. Whereas with a real, um, you know, clinical trial or observational type study, you want hundreds, if not thousands of participants. So those are just some of the ways that they're able to, to use uh, research that really, uh, really use either weak designs or insufficient sample sizes, you know, to make these claims and, you know, deceive people into thinking that not only is it not harmful, but it's even beneficial. Like, uh, you know, prime example of that is PTSD. Now, marijuana is a qualifying condition for PTSD in most states that have medical marijuana programs. Um, but the, you know, and none of the qualifying conditions are based on any kind of scientific evidence because there is no evidence that marijuana is an effective medicine uh, for the vast majority of these qualifying conditions. Um, but in the case of PTSD, it's actually adverse. Um, there have been two studies done in veterans uh, with PTSD with large sample sizes, and they found that uh, veterans with PTSD who used marijuana experienced uh, a worsening of their symptoms. So, and that was replicated in another study. So it's actually adverse. Interesting. So how, how can the, the general public, the, the folks that don't know this stuff, how can they, where can they go to find it, to learn it? I do publish a research blog where I look at all of the evidence uh, and all the published studies that are being published on marijuana and medical marijuana. And I, what, what I do is I, as I put the study results in layman's terms so that uh, anybody can understand what the study actually found um, and they don't need, you know, uh, scientific, a scientific background to be able to understand that. I would say that would be a good source to find out on the, the, the manifold harms of marijuana. The blog helps me. I am one of those people that needs help understanding data and research. So thank you. Now, I kind of jumped right into your podcast. Can you just sort of 
tell me more. What is the, the big picture vision for the podcast, which is titled Pathways to Prevention for my listeners out there? The, the goal is to just highlight, you know, some of the innovative work that's being done all over the, the globe, because there's a lot of exciting prevention projects being done. Uh, one of our, our guests who is with the Colombo Plan in Sri Lanka, her name was Dechen Choden. And she had it, we featured her and she talked about her project on training Afghan teachers to give the universal prevention curriculum, uh, which is, which was designed by uh, the State Department and, and INL. So that was very interesting listening to, you know, the challenges that they faced in doing that. Then we also had a guest from Macau in China who talked about their very innovative treatments, recovery treatments program called ARC-M, which stands for Art Macau. And their approach is to use art uh, as a form of therapy to help people in their recovery. So people that are in the program, they make sculptures, paintings, uh, and then they sell them. And they're, they're actually quite successful in doing that. And the, you know, the, the biggest difference I found with his program and say, you know, a treatment program here in the U.S., at least from what I experience as I'm in recovery myself and I've been to treatment myself, is, you know, after whatever length of time your insurance is willing to pay for, that's what you get. And then you're, you're out, you're out the door, um, not really much follow up or aftercare, but at ART-M, they have a dedicated aftercare program where the participants remain close, you know, the, the association with, with, the, with the center continues over the long term. And they are given um, employment assistance in terms of training them to write a resume, interviewing skills, they're accompanied on their on their their job interviews just you know just to have just to have the support they have a coffee um a cafe where they sell coffee and that's all people in recovery people associated with the center and we also what i thought one of one of the most interesting parts of the interview with augusto was just some of the cultural issues that he encountered with his, you know, population, you know, and the, the Asian culture. In Asia, there's this thing, it, it's, it's called face. And I encountered this myself as, as I've done work in Asia. And it basically means the person's honor. So um, you never, you know, in, in, in Asian countries, especially in, in Southeast Asia, People don't ever want to be seen as losing face. So um, it can be very challenging to get them to open up in group settings, you know, like you would have in a treatment center. It's difficult to do that. They don't, they don't want to put themselves out there, you know, in front of other people. Even, even uh, the therapists that, that are part of that culture they, they, they have those views as, as well. So that, that affects the way they, they treat the, the patients. I'll give you an example, one that I, I heard directly from a colleague 
uh, when I was in Southeast Asia, there was a surgeon who was performing a surgery in Thailand. And he, it was a teaching hospital, so there were a bunch of residents with him observing the surgery. And he left a surgical instrument in the patient's. And nobody said any, none of the met, none of the residents, none of the students, because they didn't want the surgeon to lose face because he was older than them, you know, a surgeon. So that's how face can work. So you can imagine how difficult the, diff, the challenges it, it can pose in a treatment setting. It was interesting to me because I like stuff like that. Yeah, that is that is fascinating and not to, to shift the focus too much, but that just reminded me of um the Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And one of the things he talks about is allow people to save face. Yeah. Interesting. And you kind of hinted a little bit at some of your, your past work experience on the international stage. And well, quite frankly, your podcast is called Pathways to Prevention. I want to know about your pathway to prevention. How did you end up working at Drug Free America? How did you end up working in prevention? <laughs> well, uh, there's a saying that I've heard that, you know, we make plans and God laughs. Mm -hmm. I've certainly mm -hmm. found that that has held true in, in, in my life. You know, when I started out in school, I, you know, I didn't even know what epidemiology was much less want to be an epidemiologist. And when I got my, I got a master's degree in public health uh, with a concentration in international health. And as a part, part of the requirement for that degree was to do a field experience in a developing country of at least three months. Well, as luck would have it, my graduate advisor knew a professor that, a Cornell professor, that was doing a large epidemiological study in Northeast Brazil. So he was able to arrange for that to be my, my field experience, which turned out to be, which turned into a full-time gig. They, they liked me because I spoke Portuguese. I minored in it in uh, my undergraduate program. And I did a six month exchange in Brazil as part of my undergraduate degree. So I had a very good foundation in the language. So I was able to, uh, to stay on. And that's how I got into epidemiology. I originally, I wanted to do like aid work, like work for an NGO in Africa or something like that. But those, and I certainly pursued that, but none of those doors opened. Uh, and that was the door the, in Brazil to this, this project, that, that was the door that opened. I did that. It was a, it was a fantastic experience. And when I when I came back to the to the U.S., um, you know, I, I I married a woman from there, and we came back to the U.S. And then I found a job in uh, my family was in San Diego, California. So um, I found a job in San Diego, working for the Department of the Navy, doing health research mostly in the area of cancer epidemiology, which is another thing I would have never imagined. Because if I was going to be an epidemiologist, my attraction was more for like infectious disease. So then that was this other huge shift into cancer epidemiology. And uh, I had a wonderful mentor who I never had a desire to get a PhD, didn't really 
yeah, it just, I didn't have the desire really or the ambition for it because it's a lot of work. And especially when you have a full-time job, but he encouraged, he was also an adjunct professor at uh, UC San Diego. And, uh, you know, he really encouraged me to apply, which I did. And I got accepted. And the thing that really enabled me to do that degree was that I was able to use my work at the Naval Health Research Center for my PhD dissertation. If it hadn't been for that, I don't know if I could have done it because it would have just been miserable. And then my work in Brazil, where I was involved in primary data collection, which was, you know, working in this community, knocking on doors, doing these interviews, that fulfilled that requirement. So I got a waiver and I didn't, so I was able just to use secondary data, which I got from the, the Navy. So it was very, and I got paid, you know, I was doing my dissertation, but it was aligned with the projects I was working on for the Navy anyways. So I essentially got paid to do the PhD, which was uh, just a huge blessing. Well, then I got what <laughs> we say in epidemiology is the epidemiologist curse, where you uh -oh. tend to get the disease that you're studying. And so at 32 years old, when I was really kind of at the peak of my life, both, you know, professionally and, and all of that, uh, I was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer. And um, by the time it was detected, it was at an advanced stage and the, uh, the prognosis wasn't very good. So that was very traumatizing and it was completely, you know, devastating because it was something I felt like, you know, it was something I, I couldn't run from. There was no way to hide from this new reality that was just unimaginable. So, you know, I had to have surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. And I remember being in the infusion center waiting, you know, for my chemotherapy and looking at all these people there that were uh, much older and almost skeletal. And I was just like, how did this become my reality? So that was, that was a very, very, very hard knock. And that was when I was introduced to opioids, really powerful opioids. And I found that, you know, when I, I remember the very first dose that I got of oxycodone. And to me, it felt like bliss. And it took away the fear, the terror that I felt. And that became my crutch <clears throat> to deal with it. You know, I was, I think I was pretty good at compartmentalizing and not thinking about this because, you know, I, I had five years, you know, if, if, if I was able to make it to the five year mark without a recurrence, then I would be considered cured. But there was a greater than 70 percent chance that that wouldn't happen so that was you know always at the back of my mind and especially when i went in for the follow-up 
CT scans. I mean, it was just terrifying and I would have nightmares. I basically, that gave me PTSD. And that for me manifested as depression, like severe depression, anxiety more when, you know, it would come time for the, the follow-up appointments, nightmares, and then depersonalization, derealization syndrome. And so the opioids became my crutch, as I said, and because of my medical history, and this was at a time when opioids were being very loosely prescribed in general. And with my history, the, the doctors would give me anything I wanted. And so even, you know, at the point when I was done with my, my treatment and I really wasn't in pain, I was continuing to get pills and it escalated and I, you know, got into pain management and got more increasingly powerful prescriptions like for Dilaudid and Opana as, you know, my tolerance would increase. And I think that that really put a strain on my relationship. So that fell apart. And I would say that I was largely to blame for that because I really withdrew. You know, it was like going through that experience. Something was taken away from me, like my, my sense of security that we have, you know, most, mostly, you know, was completely stripped away. And, you know, I just withdrew emotionally and, you know, withdrew into the drugs and alcohol and became distant. So um, that I think was the, the primary factor in the breakdown of, of my relationship, which was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. That I think at that point, you know, I was completely broken mentally, physically, and spiritually. And that's when I started IV drug use. And um, I shifted to uh, heroin. And then the stars kind of aligned. It was really strange. You know, I was, a, I was a functional addict, though. I was doing my work, you know, performing, and there was no, no problems there. I really didn't let my drug use at that point interfere with my work. And then I went on uh, a trip to Southeast Asia for uh, vacation. I went to Cambodia and Thailand. And I had a colleague from graduate school who was Cambodian. And we were very good friends. So I looked him up when I was, when I was out there. And I ended up getting a job, being offered a job in um, the largest nonprofit in the country as a research advisor. And that was probably the worst thing that could have, I would say, happened for, for somebody that has an opioid addiction to go to a source country, you know. So I, I, I got that job and opioids were very uh, abundant there. And that's when my, my use really, really skyrocketed. The other thing is you can get any kind of prescription drug there uh, without, a, without a script. You just walk into the pharmacy, you can buy whatever you want, morphine, benzos, uh, oxycodone. So my, my use escalated and I just, I couldn't hold down a job anymore. And I had come into a lot of money. So I wasn't really worried about the job. I was like, ah, oh, I don't need a job. 
So my, my, my use just, you know, increased and escalated. And at the heights, you know, I was spending like $200 a day on a cocktail of meth, heroin, morphine, benzos, alcohol, and ketamine. So I was, I really, really went to a very dark place. And by the end, I didn't even leave my apartment. I had everything delivered to me, you know, food and all of that. And, you know, it just dawned on me that I, I was going to die if I didn't get out of there. If I didn't go back to the States, I would die there. And just the thought of, you know, my mother getting the news and having to repatriate my remains. I just, you know, I, I didn't want to do that to my family. So I ended up going to treatments in Thailand. Uh, at a place called The Cabin, which was a phenomenal treatment center. Very, very affordable, too, with considering the level of care that you get. So I was able to, to detox from everything. That was very, very rough. I would want to go through that again for any amount of money. And then I, I, you know, I came back to the U.S., and I, I had a slip, and that was, at that time, you know, the... Uh, the dark net and the, uh, you know, Silk Road and all of that was really big. So I got into, uh, into all of that. I, I ended up getting another really, really good job. So uh, I was able to afford my addiction. But I just got to the point one day where I couldn't, as, as they say in the, in the NA program, I couldn't live with or without drugs. They didn't give me the relief anymore that I was that I was seeking, you know, and the, the terrible feelings that I had didn't help at all. And but yet I was psychologically and physically addicted pretty severely. So I, I couldn't stop. So uh, at that point, you know, I resolved that I really needed to uh, go to treatment again and and stop for good because I was at a place, mentally speaking, where. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to go on anymore. And some people became concerned based on the way I had been talking and they got me help. And thank God they did because I was in a very, very bad place. But that was, you know, at that point, I really, truly had enough. And I, I went to treatment again here in the U.S. And that was, you know, really, really a turning point for me. And that was my motivation for getting into the prevention field and you know working for an organization like Drug Free America Foundation because for me really my drug use started in when I was a, a teenager I think I've I had that tendency in me already for other reasons I was able once I reached college you know I was able to set it aside but I think that vulnerability had all, always been there if I knew then what I knew now, I would never, I wouldn't, I would never even drink, you know, alcohol, let alone marijuana or cocaine or any of that, that kind of stuff. Just because the place that they take you is just one of pure horror. It's, it's a nightmare to be addicted to drugs. And if I can prevent anybody from experiencing that, from not having to go through that, then that's, you know, for me, that's that's what it's all about. First, thank you for for 
going to that dark place, revisiting that dark place in your mind and sharing that story with us and, and letting us learn from, from your journey. And I'm just, I, I'm glad you came back to the U.S. I'm glad you got out of that dark place because the impact you're having on the world is is tenfold is so value just priceless so i'm I'm glad i'm glad you're here and i felt like i was i was seeing a, a theme or sort of a a common thread throughout your story and it being connection connection is what sort of worked your way out in san diego you had that great mentor sort of helping guide your life and then connection to family was what brought you back from cambodia and then that that second time you had some folks reach out because they were connected to you they they heard some things you were saying and helped helped you out there and now what I'm hearing is just a strong connection to prevention as well. So connection is of utmost importance. And we live in a society now that really prizes um, or prioritizes individual well-being over family or community well-being. And, and if you think of the way um, that humans evolved, you know, we evolved in groups. We couldn't survive if we hadn't. So that's literally the need for connection is built into our DNA. So the importance of it can't be overstated. I know connection to people for support one of the things that really has empowered me to just say no to alcohol and not drink anymore and break my, my addiction is connection to me internally, who I am, getting back to who I, I am at my core. And that is one thing that has really given me strength is clarity of who I am and the kind of man that I, I want to be and being connected to that vision as well that's right and you know i was very fortunate in this last place that i went to for treatment some six years ago and that that was a remarkable story in itself because really i believe that it was divine intervention that saved my life i've always had a strong connection to the god of my understanding that's been something that I've had since, you know, childhood. I just, you know, I got away from that. And you know, when I was walking in, you know, many years of spiritual death, but at, in, my, in my darkest and most desperate moments, I, I reached out, you know, to the God of my understanding for help. And the way things fell into place was nothing short of a miracle. First of all, when I went to treatment again in the U.S., I didn't have a penny to my name. At that point, I didn't have a job because I had been through several really good jobs and I just couldn't hold them because, 
my using it by that point had just reached a point where I, I couldn't handle anything. So I had no job, no insurance, but I was able to get into a treatment center. I got a scholarship. It was all paid for. And then I got to meet with a fantastic trauma therapist who helped me to work out not only the illness you know, that I went through and the trauma associated with that, but other things, you know, from my childhood that I think predisposed me towards, you know, addiction. So there, and there was, it was almost an instantaneous shift that occurred within me. It was, it was like miraculous. And the depersonalization and derealization episodes that I had been experiencing, those went away. And I was able to really reconnect with my true self, uh, which I had been cut off from for uh, so long. And when you, when you reestablish that connection, you don't want to do things that are harmful you know, to yourself, like, like using drugs. And you know, I, I found that loving yourself enables you to better love others. You know, except you have to first be compassionate, kind, understanding, and accepting of yourself before you can truly be that way um, to others. I think so. You're you're absolutely right. You know, connect reconnecting with yourself is is very very important. So we've talked about connection. We've talked about your podcast, the blog posts, and we've talked about your journey that has helped shape and help mold and craft you and your why, your drive behind the work that you're doing. But we haven't really taken time to actually just talk about the work that you do as an epidemiologist. So can you tell me what that means and a little bit about what, what that looks like? Yeah, sure. First, I think it'd be good if I define what epidemiology is, because yes, please. a lot of times when I tell people I'm an epidemiologist, they're like, oh, are, you're a skin doctor? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but actually, uh, epidemiology is the study of epidemics. And the kind of formal definition for it is the study of the determinants and distribution of disease in a population. So epidemiology, it's really uh, a set of tools that you can use to study any, any kind of condition. And so I'm using my training to study, of course, the, the substance use epidemic that we're currently experiencing in this, in this country. And I do a lot of, a lot of the, the, the work and analysis that I'm doing deals with marijuana because I think that marijuana is particularly sinister because people don't view it as harmful. And a lot of times when people think of marijuana, they're thinking of, you know, the drug that the hippies smoked at, you know, Woodstock that, you know, our grandparents would have used in Woodstock. But what they don't understand a lot of the time is that the, the marijuana of today is, is a completely different drug. I, I would go so far as to say it's, it's a different drug. 
because it's 10 to 15 times more potent in terms of the THC concentration compared to the 60s and 70s, and even the 80s and 90s. Uh, I think the average THC level in the 90s was about 5%. And now we're seeing strains, and this is actually common, the commonly encountered strains in a dispensary will have more than 20% uh, THC. And that has a whole host of adverse consequences, especially for younger people, because the brain, you know, as, as we know, the brain is developing until 25 or 26 approximately. So when young people use these really high potency marijuana strains, it disrupts that precisely and carefully orchestrated brain development that's going on. And that leads to cognitive impairments, can lead to permanent loss of IQ, a motivation, which has far-reaching implications for a person's employment prospects, their relationships. Youth that use marijuana are much more likely to think, plan, and attempt suicide. They're much more likely to become depressed experience anxiety, and marijuana is independently associated uh, with those outcomes. So in other words, um, when we're looking at the relationship between marijuana and mental health, we, when these studies are done, they're taking into account a person's socioeconomic status, their gender, their ethnic background, all, all those other factors that could influence a person's risk for depression or, or anxiety. But we're finding that, that even after you account for all of that, marijuana is independently associated with negative mental health outcomes. So, and you know, with, with the proliferation of vaping, marijuana vaping among, among youth has become much more popular and widespread. And those vape products can be up to you know, north of 90% THC concentration. So it's, it's a very serious health risk. The other, the other very disturbing trend is that more and more pregnant women are using marijuana. It's, it's actually being recommended by dispensary employees. There was a study done where the researchers called various dispensaries posing as a pregnant woman uh, with morning sickness, asking whether or not marijuana would help them. And in every case, the dispensary employee, rather than referring them to a physician, said, oh, yeah, sure, you know, marijuana is great for that. But we know that prenatal THC exposure results in uh, a wide range of, of adverse outcomes. It increases risk for autism in childhood. It causes, it can cause impulsivity, cognitive impairments, um, various neurocognitive and ver uh, neurobehavioral deficits. So it's, it's a very, very worrying trend. And I think a lot of it has to do with people, they just don't view it as, as harmful. Mm -hmm. And when when i talk with prevention coalitions prevention professionals 
the the go is you're either a data person or you're not and you have a way of of unpacking and repackaging data to where i can understand it i feel like a lot of us because i'm one of those not data people when i hear data epi valuation i just tense up and like uh it sounds scary and overwhelming how how do you approach it how do you make it so easily digestible well i think you know data and epidemiology it's not really as difficult or you know as people as people think i think yeah they do tend can get uh, intimidated by it but it's it's really not um not as difficult as it seems because when you take epidemiology and you kind of boil it down to its essential elements it's really rather simple basically with with epidemiology you're comparing two or more groups and you're just looking at the differences and all of epidemiology boils down to person time and place who got the disease when did they get it and where were they located and 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 that's it you know that's kind of the fundamental place from which you know epidemiology epidemiological studies are done and really all you have to know i would say to interpret an epidemiological study would just be very a rudimentary knowledge of statistics there's a thing called a p value whenever you see a statistic presented or a measure of association presented in um, a study, it'll have a p-value with it. So what a a measure of association, that sounds kind of complicated, but it really isn't. It's just when you are, like let's say you look at the rate of cancer in one population and the rate of cancer in, in another population. And let's say, the rate in population A is 200 people out of 100,000. The rate in population B is 100 people out of 100,000. So you just may, you know, you just compare those rates and group A has twice as much incidence of cancer as group B. So you're just dividing the rate of cancer in population B by, I'm sorry, the rate of cancer, cancer in population A by the rate of cancer in population B, and that gives you, you know, two. That's the measure of association. So it's, it's, it's really not that complicated. And when, whenever a measure of association is given, it'll have a p-value. And all you need to know that is if the, if the p-value is less than 0.05, then you can be pretty confident in the results. There's also something called the 95% confidence interval. And so for the measure of association that, um, the hypothetical measure of association that I, that I was just talking about. So you'll see, they'll, they'll often present that with what's called the 95% confidence interval. So it, that has a, a lower limit and an upper limit. So for a measure of association that is, say, a two, you might see a confidence interval with a lower limit of 1.1 and the upper limit of 2.5.
So as long as that confidence interval does not contain one, then you know it's the result. You can be very confident in the results. And if it doesn't contain one, the p-value will always be less than 0.05. And you don't have to understand why. If you just know that information, you can interpret a study. I'm going to hit rewind probably two or three times. I can write that down and remember it. <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it. I tell you what, we've been we've been chatting for quite a while now, and time's actually kind of flown by. I just glanced down the clock to see what our time was. This has been a wonderful conversation, and it's been more than a conversation, I think. I feel like it's been a journey. It, it's been a journey. We've taken a nice, nice, long walk together in this virtual world, and I'm just going to, this is my own, just for me, I'm going to bring it back to connection and that that common thread in your journey and that that holds so true to to what i believe as well about not just prevention being better together but just together is better and beautiful design that our paths have crossed I, i'm honored that they have and i look forward to seeing you in florida at the ninth annual summit as well. It's going to be great to actually meet in person. As we close out this episode, though, what what would be a, a nice call to action? Or if you're going to remember one thing from this episode, remember this. What do you have for our listeners? I would encourage everybody to just to subscribe to our podcast, Pathways to Prevention, so you can learn about all of the exciting, innovative, and really interesting things that are being done in prevention around the world. That link is going to be in the show notes. I've subscribed actually on two different platforms, Spotify and Google Podcasts, because I don't want to miss an episode. Quite frankly, I find your interviews and your guests inspiring. It It's easy to stay in our focus area where I work, you know, not looking up to see all the other amazing work going on around the world. And Taking, you know, 20, 30 minutes, listening to one of your interviews re-energizes me and, and rekindles that, that spark inside of me to go forth and do the work as well. So listeners, check it out. A lot of cool stuff happening and Sharif is bringing it right to you. And I'm having you back on the podcast, whether you like it or not, because this has been awesome. I just love talking to you. I love, I, I just love connecting with you. Thank you very much for your time and the work you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. And actually, next time, I'll have to have you on, on our podcast. <laughs> so I, I really look forward to seeing you in, in August at our summit. Oh, and that's another thing. If, if you haven't registered for our summit, please do so. It's the uh, annual Southeast Drug Prevention Summit hosted by Drug Free America Foundation. August 30th and 31st. And I will be there speaking on the 31st. So listeners, better see you there. All right. Marvelous. Well, let's sign off for today and until we chat again. All right. Thanks, Dave. Pleasure as always. Take care. That concludes this episode. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to hit subscribe and check the show notes. There are links to Sharif's podcast, their website, and where you can register for the ninth annual summit where I will be speaking. And hey, I hope to see you there. And remember, Prevention is better together, and together we are stronger.